Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Projects at Work. I've got another podcast interview today, and this one is a very, very special one. So I recently posted the podcast where I had the first ever surprise guest, and he's been kind enough to come back and let me ask him a lot of questions. So Dr. Alistair Coburn, thank you for taking time out of your afternoon. Well, thank you for uh, getting my name right. That's the first thing. So thank you for that. <laughs> thanks for the invitation. Thanks for letting me gate crash. And, you know, thanks to Nick Cementa for kind of like uh, uh, bridging us together. <laughs> yeah. So so you're right now, you're still largely, I mean, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about, but I guess first it would be good to talk about the heart of Agile because that is your primary focus right now, correct? Yeah, it, it is for sure. Um, and so in this, you had, you sent me a couple of questions that you were interested in, a couple of topics. Yep. One's heart of agile, but there was some other one that was like either more personal or more kind yes. of like a little bit more peripheral. What would that be? So, all right. So we'll go to that one first. So, no, no, just tell me. I mean, just oh, tell me what so that's the listeners about, maybe would like to have a little table of contents too. About yeah. What okay. So, so one of the things that I'm very curious about, I mean, I, we've met once or twice, but mostly what I hear about you are stories about, your lifestyle, and I see pictures of you, like the thousands of pictures of you with your head resting on a bottle, or you getting your skydiving license, or stories about you bungee jumping. I mean, you live a very exotic, it seems to be somewhat nomadic life, and my assumption is that that's all by design. And I wanted yeah. to ask you so, a little bit about I, how I, that I propose, works. And, yeah, I propose we start with that. So for okay. the, the listeners who... Don't want to hear about Agile. I can hear this and bounce out when they get to Agile. Or you know, if anybody doesn't care about this, they can look in later in the in the interview. All right. So I, I guess I'll officially ask the question over again. Then. Um, I, I don't know. Just look, you're recording. You can do anything you want. All right. <laughs> all right. So you've got this somewhat nomadic lifestyle and my my understanding of it which is all through other people is that your life is designed in a way to allow you to enjoy as much of it as possible and get as much out of it as you can and i'm assuming you're still very passionate about your work but that as i understand it is somewhat compressed as well is that yeah you're you're correct on you're correct on all counts so so you know roughly speaking a trajectory would look like this um I, I was a consultant for IBM in the early 90s. Travel got too much. I had a little family. Um, so I was based in uh, Salt Lake City. And uh, I did, you know, round trip, the usual consultant thing, round trip travel, point to point, and back home again. And and a couple of things, you know, for people who are setting up their own consultant life or wondering how to, how to make that work, th- there were a couple of rules I put in place that kept it, that life sane for both me and my family and, and made it so I could do that for like about 20 years. Okay. And, and the first rule was 50% travel max, okay. max okay. cap, hard cap every now and then, you know, if I'm doing, so I'd have 50%, it meant that I couldn't take certain kinds of consulting opportunities. I couldn't be a full-time project manager. I couldn't be a system architect. I couldn't be, you know, lead programmer, any of those types of things. Because they require more than 50% of your time. You really have to be there like pretty much at least four days a week, if not five. So can I and ask you one quick con- question about that part? Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Interrupt you. So, um, and then I'll try to, to not interrupt. But having worked on that side of things, like when I was at EMC, I was a PM and I didn't really have a choice. So just like you're here from you know Monday till Friday or Sunday till Friday. And from the way you just described it, 
that means you're not going to take certain types of jobs. Like a lot of people put themselves in the victim role. I have to travel 75 or 100 percent. But you could just say, I'm not going to take that project management job or that lead job. I'm going to take something less so I can spend more time with my family. Right. And now this gets, you know, really back to the question that you started off with, which is, you know, it's a quality of life thing. And um, and particularly in the U.S., but honestly, I see this in every country, including the countries that claim to have high quality lifestyle, you know, Scandinavia, Sweden, Finland, Germany, it doesn't matter where, even France, um, you know, they claim to have high quality lifestyle. But the moment somebody becomes a project manager or consultant, there's two rules. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> The, the, the two rules that apply are you are supposed to make as much money as you possibly can and you are supposed to travel whenever you're told and all the time. And I rejected both of those. When I started in 1994, I had a family and, and, and I did a little study, you know, talked to some, some, some consultants and thought about this a bit, you know, my usual fashion. And I asked the question, how do you become an old married, still married to the same person, how do you become an old married consultant? Why do people become consultants and why do they stop becoming consultants? If consulting is so great, why do they ever quit? Um, and and part of the answer to the why they quit is burnout. It's just to travel too much. And, and the divorce rate's just yeah, stupid. Yeah, brutal. Amongst consultants, so so I did some discussions and you know thinking about it, and and I so I set the first rule was was I have a family, uh, and when I first started with the IBM Consulting Group, I, I had two little kids, and I told my boss, um, coming from IBM Research to IBM Consulting, I said I can travel about eight days a month because I have a family, and my boss, of course, said yes, and then put me on the road. <laughs> Totally nonstop. Like I'd be gone yeah. five weeks, be home for three days, then be gone for three weeks. Yeah. And my wife, quite correctly, you know, pulled the plug on that. She said, well, you know, I'm going back to Salt Lake City. You do whatever you want. And I said, ah, I'm coming yeah. to Salt Lake. And then, and then I started doing, this was 93. I was one of the first remote office workers and my boss was appropriately against it as I would be. But, but let me anyway. So, so what happened was at one moment, they just put me out in the field and I was literally Flying out Sunday night, coming back Friday night, I had a day and a half at home, bounce the kids on the knees, wash their clothes, and go out again. I lasted three weeks. Wow. And I turned in my resignation. That okay. was it. It was just, there was no option. So that's that's kind of the, the precursor to this. Which is a brave, th- that's a brave thing to do in itself. I'm assuming well, you didn't well, have something else lined up at the moment, no, I had right? nothing. No, I had nothing lined up. This was 1994. Object-oriented programming was hot. And I knew my object-oriented stuff. And and people were leaving IBM, uh, I won't say in droves, but, you know, the people with good object-oriented programming skills were finding it was more lucrative to be freelance. And I was afraid that IBM would just choose somebody at random to make an example of, and I wanted to make sure it wasn't me. Okay. Right? Like, the odds of them coming after me were slim, but but my view, I'm actually conservative in a, cert, in a few ways. And one of them is... I'm not having them make an example out of me. Yeah. So I literally did not look for a job in any fashion whatsoever while I was an employee of IBM. Okay. And all my friends are going, you're an, you're an idiot, Alistair. You line up at least your first gig. I said, if I line up my first gig, they can come after me for using my IBM connections oh, to line wow. up my first gig. Okay. And I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not having that. I'm not 
you know, I'm I, I'm running a zero risk factor on this. And thing. that was that was so, back when you had those agreements that said you will never, you will not work in your field for the next ten years if you leave this company. I, I don't I don't remember, but all I know is there were enough people leaving. Yeah. That that all all I didn't need was for somebody in the IBM bureaucracy to get annoyed with me and decide, hey, we'll just make an example of this guy and just take him down, right? So I literally. Nothing. I was a straight out IBM employee. I was writing um, uh, consulting guides, programming guides, use case guides, design guides. That was my job in those days. Okay. Uh, um, I was part way through the writing, and when I said, "You know, do you want me to go?" Instead of saying "clear your office," they said, "You know, they were nice. I had a nice boss, and said, you know, could you please finish writing some of those guides before you go?'" So I stayed at home and, and wrote the guides, but I didn't look around for anything till it was my last day. You know, July first of 1994 and literally i had nothing so july 1st 1994 and i how, pop open my laptop kids? oh they're in the early they're in the 20s now i mean 94 uh, they're in their 20s. 94 they were they were like three five years old just little kids okay four six something like that um yeah so i popped open my laptop and i just started sending out i and and i'd done a little research you know on this stuff and I just sent out, you know, like 10 emails and three phone calls a day. Just every day, my, my work was to send out 10 emails and three phone calls. Because you want to pace it. If you send out everything on the first day, then you're depressed on day three because you haven't heard anything back. <laughs> so so you make sure you've got a big list of people to write to and yeah. you just pace it. So you have something to do every day for, you know, and it takes a couple of, can take a couple of months to get it. Here's the other thing is that I found is you need, it's four months uh, you have to have enough cash to live for four months, from the day you decide to go freelance till you get you get a regular till you yeah. get paid till you get paychecks coming in. Because it might take you two months to get a gig, and then it might so you do that, and then you turn in your invoice, and it can take you you know six weeks, month and a half to get paid, or two yeah. months to get paid. You need four months of cash in the bank. So we, you know, I had a little rule. We, I was very conservative all about that. I said, okay, we're in a no spend zone. My wife, my wife would go, well, um, I was going to buy some shoes for the kids. I go, well, you buy shoes for the kids, right? But there's no trips. There's no vacations. There's no, you know, anniversary rings. We're not going out to dinner. You know, you just do the basics. Um, and it took me, indeed, it took me about two months. So that's, you know, that's that's eight weeks of just looking for work and looking for work and looking for And then you get one and then you do teach something and then you wait for the thing to come in and then you look for the second job and you wait for the to the money to come in and, and, and so on. So it took, it actually took four months. Wow. So we were in that no spend zone, but in, in that, right. So the reason, but the reason I quit, um, so that was, so, so to back up the idea of pacing, pacing the, the contact thing and not just doing it one big swoop. So I have to keep busy for eight weeks, right? I have to have enough people to keep contacting for, for at least a month. So doing that like as a as a regular. So were you consciously planning it that way at the time, or is that something in retrospect? You're like, it was good that I did a couple a day to keep busy every day. No, I knew that at the time. No, I knew that. No, no, I knew. So um, I had tried to publish articles and poetry Uh and books and stuff like that before, and and the the um, advice in the industry of writers is when you have a short story, let's say, or an article or a poem, you make a stack of, of um, uh, on envelopes that are addressed and have stamps on them in a pile, and your rejection rate, you can expect 
25 to 30 rejections for every before you get accepted. Wow. I had read about that. And so the, the, the method, the recommended method is to set up a stack of envelopes, always, you know, like at least 10 envelopes of places you're going to send your article or poem or, you know, or whatever wow. to, short story to. And, and you don't look at it. You expect rejection. You're going to get 25 or 30. And so you send off your, your, your beautiful, beautiful idea. And then weeks later, six weeks later or whatever, three weeks later or whatever, You'll get an envelope back and it'll say, you know, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> and and you don't even think about it. It's mechanical and you just – and they usually will return your paper manuscript. Nowadays, it's online. You know, it's probably different. But in those days, it was paper. And you literally take your piece of, you know, your thing from the envelope and you slide it into the next envelope and you drop it off in the mailbox. Oh, you so you're saying, you wow, okay. Now, this was the advice that I had I had yeah. seen in, in how to get your work published. Like, if you don't do that, you're going to open it up and dwell on the fact that you got a rejection. But if you've got already stamped and addressed the envelope for the next place you're going to send it, yeah, you don't you don't have time to dwell on it. You you just you go, oh, that one's out. Okay, slide it in the next envelope, mail it out, and then it's always out. You know, circulating, and you, and you set up ten envelopes in advance. Or you don't wow. do like send it off and hope that man I'm going to hit it big this time. No, you're in the rejection business and 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 you just and you well, just line them up. It's also a neat way of coping with with the fact that somebody's not just I mean if, especially if it's poetry they're rejecting your soul right there. But you're putting it in another envelope. It's just that was the first rejection. Now I'm working on the way to the second one. Like you're well, climbing you're, up you're the exactly, ladder. You're exactly correct. There is nothing more personal than someone rejecting. Um, an article or a poem, even if it was tech writing, if I was writing, you know, a tech article, this is, this is my most valuable possession in the industry is my thoughts. Yeah. So if that gets rejected, they're rejecting my thoughts. I was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible ego blow. You know, poet, whether it's poetry, um, article, short story, or tech writing, it's, right. it's, it's, it's deep ego harsh, problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I had, I had read about that. I had never done it, but you know, I studied that up. I was going to publish some poems and things before. So I just said, okay, same applies, same applies with trying to find a client. You know, I just better have N hundred, you know, collect everybody in your Rolodex, everybody you could possibly find everybody in your phone book, everybody you can scrape online. But you start off just writing, and so you do N a day, you know, whatever it is, whatever your budget is. And 10, you know, 10 letters a day, emails a day can take a good chunk of time. And then you get, you know, no, 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 no. But, but you're active. You're active. So you're yeah. not just sitting around fretting and waiting. And so, yeah, so that was the first thing about, about going solo was I had something that was valuable, object-oriented design. Um, and I said, well, if, you know, 94, if I can't make a living off of object-oriented design – it's not the problem with the topic. It's the problem with me. Let's see what I can do. And and still, you know, I mean, I somebody who knew me vaguely, I had an object-oriented design class, um, said, and I said 1700 a day. That was my rate at the time. Okay. And he goes, yeah, I'll pay you 1700 a day to come teach my people something about object-oriented design. He knew, he knew how to buy stuff. So that was my first gig. And then, and then, actually, very strangely, um, an IBM project was my second gig. In that. <laughs> and then, and it, yeah, it was actually it was actually the project I had been on a couple of months before wow. that caused me to quit. 
And so they knew me. And so when they got into some trouble, they had a new person. It says, Alistair, you know, I know your parameters because I discussed with them. I know your parameters, you know, 50% time and your rate and da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, just get out here and help yeah. us out, right? Um, so anyway, back to this. So, so I, I do this. Not everybody does this, but, but I did this, you know, like how do you become a consultant? How do you survive the first days? Um, you always keep that four months of living expenses, always. Anything happens, boom, it's four months till you get your next first paycheck Okay. Um, in there. And the next thing was travel time. So I have a family. So I quit because of the travel. And you're right. You're absolutely right. It's a quality of life thing. I just go, you know, dang, I, I would love to be system architect or project manager or lead designer. I literally cannot take those gigs. Those are like the juicy, juicy, juicy gigs if you, if you like that stuff. But that's, uh, that's uh, a choice you're making because as much as you want that, you want to be with your family more. Lifestyle. You know? yeah. And this is now getting to your question. Um, I have been since that moment driving for lifestyle ever since. And I have a, a friend um, in Calgary, Pete McBreen. Um, shout out to Pete McBreen here, who a fabulous consultant, really smart, wonderful guy. Uh, the, one of the first people I ever licensed to teach my use cases course, there's object-oriented design use cases, agile methodology, all that stuff. And he selected to stay in Calgary and do all of his consulting in Calgary. And I'm going, Calgary cannot support you. You know, come over here, teach these classes. And he said, I have a family and I have a no travel rule. I mean, a no travel rule. Yeah. I, I'm consulting in town. So he did all kind of stuff, you know, and he eventually built up his reputation in Calgary. Um, and that was a lifestyle choice. But his was stronger than mine. I have a no travel rule. I have a family. I'm staying in town. Boom. And so like that. when you made that choice, that's is that something that you make with sort of like joy in your heart and pride? Like I am, I am electing to spend time with my family over the glory of this, you know, exciting sounding job because this thing is more rewarding to me. Or is it just like, oh, I can't take the job because I, you know, can't travel. I mean, a lot of people again are they don't make it that choice. Well, you made it. You made it family. You see, I didn't. I said lifestyle. Okay, okay, sorry, lifestyle. So, but now, it's, now it's it a depends decision. what your lifestyle importance are. There are people I know, like Pete McBreen. Let's take that, right? Okay. He said, "I have a family. I'm not traveling." Period. Boom. Right. Right. Me, I'm looking at what does does this does anything does this in, and this is the theme of your question. Does this enhance the quality of my life or not? And and I use that question for pretty much everything. You know, if I'm making friends. There are people that you that want to spend time with you and with every person, male, female, professional, or personal. I go, so does spending time with this person enhance the quality of my life or not? Does watching I stopped watching news. I stopped watching TV um years ago because I was looking at news and, and going, you know, watching this news <laughs> doesn't sucks. enhance the quality of my life it doesn't know yeah. so why am i doing this it doesn't enhance the quality of my life so like everything that's happening i'm asking this question does this enhance the quality of my life my exercise my food my social context professional context personal where do i live how do i live everything 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 and i've been running that question for basically 20 years so i'm pretty sensitive on that question which is the whole of your question. Well, th- that, there's that you a, asked there's at the beginning. A, yeah, there's another aspect to it, and I think it's in the response, and it's something that maybe I'm personally working through. Is I can ask that question, and I can come up with a fairly reasonable answer, but I'm still having to remind myself I've chosen to do this instead of that. Like at the end of the day, if oh, I totally. have twenty things Absolutely. I didn't do, I focus on the things I didn't do instead of remembering. You know what? I picked these things because they were more important to me. 
Oh, I have an idea. So I've, you know, I've gone down this path for a long, long time. And when I when I first started working for the IBM Consulting Group in 1991, my job was uh, what they call focal point for object oriented technology in in the IBM external everything. <laughs> right. Okay. I was I was it right, the for the whole globe. Yeah. And 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 what that meant, even in '91, there are people asking questions around the globe. So there's it's a 24/7 operation, and I was alone. I was just like me, and and, and traveling and you know emails and all the rest of that stuff. And there was a moment where I you know just looked at my potential workload, and the potential workload was infinite, just infinite. There was you know there's just not a bound to it. Yeah. And I did a little a little peculiar. I'm you know, trained as a partly mathematics kind of a guy. And so for those of you who are kind of mathematically inclined, there's this humorous little thing that, that can produce you some relaxation. So if you've got any math in you, Dave, then then this can this can help you here. Um, and so what happens is there's an infinite, you know, an infinite number minus a finite number is still an infinite number, right? Yeah. You're up on that, right? Yeah. So, so there's an infinite a number of, of plates I'm trying to juggle. And I can only juggle a finite number of plates. Okay. That means the number of plates that are going to come crashing down and breaking around me is infinite. Right? Right. That means I can reduce the number of finite number of plates that I'm juggling successfully. Let a few more break and crash around me. And I haven't changed the number that are breaking. It's still infinite. Yeah. What that did for me, odd, that odd piece of logic there, I don't know if you caught up with it all the way, it means that I can do less. Things will still fall apart. The number of things falling apart is infinite. Huh. So I don't care about the So that's about not going yeah, to move the needle on I that one no matter what. I've changed the number of things that are going to break and fall apart and I'm not going to pay attention to and I'm going to do a lousy job on. So wow. I don't have to worry about it because I actually haven't changed that number by doing less. It's okay. still infinite. So now I can do any small, finite stuff that I can do, and it actually doesn't change the amount of stuff that I'm not doing. And you so most of us look at the list of the stuff right? we didn't get around to and go, oh my gosh, the list of things I didn't get around to is big. Yeah. If you just square away, the number of things you're not getting around to is infinite. <laughs> you're huge. not changing the number. Yeah. yeah it's infinite. It's, just, it's not going to change. If you don't do a few more things, the number of things you don't do hasn't changed. Okay. So now just do less. And do you find that by doing less, you're able to get to put more, more of yourself joy. into them? Yeah, more, more joy, more quality, more everything. Wow! So I had bookshelves um, uh, when I when I I had a huge house and I had I had a very very large number of bookshelves, and then and then um, uh, eventually it, eventually my kids grew up and I did get divorced. My wife did divorce me, but I think it was because I was home too much. Instead of too <laughs> That's, little. I wonder if, you know, you said the thing about the consulting couples that stay together. Sometimes I wonder if a lot of them make it because one of them was gone so much. Yeah, we did. Well, I, I take, I think the rules that I ran allowed us to stay married a whole lot longer than otherwise. Because we were married and me traveling from 1991 till 2009. That's a good run. Uh, so that was that was eighteen years of yeah. me being a consultant, and and you know whatever happened happened, you know be that as it may. Um, but it wasn't because of my travel schedule. Okay, right? that was not the problem. Uh, it's because of the other rules that I haven't gotten. You know we haven't gotten yeah. into because we're still focused. Well, let's. We're really focused I'm let on it go. this thing that 
That no, the the thing that's super important is its quality of life, quality of life, quality of life, quality of life, and conscious choices life. about your life. Yeah, yeah, do it. Deciding right? because what if you, you do, do if you do five things with joy, it'll it'll totally swamp you know the pleasure factor of doing fifteen things with with less joy, yeah, with no joy. Right? Now, do you, was that a hard thing for you to train yourself to think about it that way? Because I struggle with that. I struggle with Yeah, remembering. you do. You know it is. I, I, I was going to say no, but in fact it is because, you know, um, there's all kinds of things. You go to a buffet, you know, you go to a buffet and you can eat everything, right? And you can eat eight different kinds of desserts and six different kinds of ice creams and then there's the fruit and there's four different kinds of meat. Yeah. And so when we go to a buffet, we totally gorge ourselves because we don't go to a buffet every day. But now imagine you go to a buffet every day and you gorge yourself for a long time. You get fat and overweight and sick, right? Yeah. And at some point, let's just pretend you're doing this like like your whole life. At some point, you just go, you know what? I can eat anything I want any day. So today, I'm just going to eat the amount I need and the stuff that's good for me. And in my case, if I had a buffet every day, uh, like at Club Med, I learned this. I would, I, I would go to Club Med on vacation for two weeks. And they did they had buffets every meal, like just yeah. just make your eyes I make your eyes water buffets every day. I found that in order to keep myself feeling good and fit and not fat and just feeling healthy, I eat fruit, vegetables, fish, and dessert. And I would go in at lunch, and I'd get some fish and some vegetables till I was about nice. I'd have a piece of dessert and leave everything else. You don't have to touch it. The amount of food I didn't touch was infinite. Right. And the amount of food, because I could have anything anytime. So today I'm just going to have the best of the best, which is fish and vegetables and a piece of dessert. So now you apply that, you apply that with gigs, you know, with, with engagements, with jobs, with friends, with books, with movies, with, 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 with everything. And, and you have a lot of choice. So it does take practice, but the way to think about it is, you know, well, I could have everything, but actually if I have just this, that's the best of the best. That's pretty awesome. I mean, that's a really amazing way to look at it. I think in making that conscious choice is a big part of it, too. Well, let's go to budgets next because that's, that's – right. we have to anchor this. We have to yeah. anchor this in money. No, because you anchor this in money, right? Yep. It's time versus money. Everybody who's a consultant No, time is money. It's, it is, right? Yeah. And typically for consultants, I remember one day in the 90s, you know, I was a couple of years in for, into it, so I wasn't at the beginning. And I just said to my, my wife one day – I literally have no idea how to make this work in 40 hours. I have no idea how anybody could possibly make this work in a 40-hour week. It's, you know, by the time you do, you know, budgeting and accounting and all your travel expenses and client acquisition, writing articles and going out to the client and actually making money, you're at 60 hours. Yeah. I have no idea how anybody could possibly think they could do this, you know, uh, uh, even eight to five, five days a week. I have no idea. Um, so so time's a real problem so anyway so i went after i went after the money thing and i said okay i'm I'm starting off i don't know anybody i'm i'm frightened and i'm coming in cold on this thing and at those days uh, we had a nice little tiny little house that was seventy thousand dollar house uh, it was 1994, and we we're in Salt Lake City, which is low um, cost of living. Right. Said I need fifty-five thousand dollars a year to put food on the table. If I can get fifty-five thousand dollars, I can make I can put food on the table. I can make it work. Yeah, that's it. Then I said, you know, and my salary in those days was seventy thousand. Um, I said, you know, if I made a hundred thousand, that'd be like that'd be like gravy. I'd be like pig in mud. I'd be like way above what I was doing before. And if I could make 
if I could make 150, oh my God, I have no idea what it means to make yeah. 150. You know, those days, I have no idea what it it's makes. It's your own it means plane. Me. I have yeah. no idea. But I'll tell you what, but I'll tell you what, this was, you know, before I hung up my shingle. Um, if I could make 150, I could call it quits for the year. I, w- I would, in fact, go so far as to say that anything beyond that's greedy because I'm used to 70,000. If I could do double that, like, like a happy pig painted gold swimming swimming in gold mud yeah. you know i mean that's to me my sense so it's i diminishing I set an upper returns limit. you don't, you don't I, need no it. yeah well but i set an upper limit so and and i don't know any of the client uh, consultants that do that and i said january 1st or whenever i start which was you know july 1st my goal is to make fifty thousand dollars after fifty thousand dollars my goal is to hit the accelerators hard as i can till i get to a hundred thousand dollars then it's to decelerate and the moment i hit one hundred fifty thousand dollars, i declare greed that's the limit and anything else any any anything else in my life is more important than the next than the next job anything doesn't matter Playing tennis, going for a walk, sleeping, kids, baking, uh, PTA, uh, no idea, any okay. anything, because you've done it, you've done it, you're at the greed, you hit the greed number. I don't know anybody who's done this besides me, having the upper number. A lot of people have lower numbers, but but not upper numbers. And generally, I've run it at a three to one, roughly speaking, two and a half or three to one. You know, as my cost of living went up, the upper limit went up too, but roughly two and a half to one or something like that. So, so what that did is it freed me up, right? So now you were talking about you're a consultant, you're yeah. going like crazy, you got the foot on the accelerator, you got fear, fear driving you all the time. Yeah. But you have this notion, I will, I am never safe. I am never safe. I must always make more, yeah, more, more. You more, always more, have more. to hustle if you're a consultant. Well, but put a greed limit on it, right? So take your base number, the, yeah. the amount you need to live. And multiply by two and a half and say, frankly, if I made two and a half what I really need to live, I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't. Okay. Let's be straight about this. I, for this year, I made my greed limit. Odds are next year, I'll at least make my minimum. I'm safe. So stop. Here, can I, I want to, can I ask you a question about this? Because this is something I've actually, pers- yeah. this is the, the, what you just described is the legend that I've heard of you before. So the thing that that I get stuck on is, I mean, you're somebody who's very deeply involved in thinking about the work that you do, and and you're passionate about that. And I have taken it to mean that when you hit that greed moment, you cut it, you cut it off, and you're not going to work anymore. But for me, forcing myself to not think about that stuff or not do that stuff, that would be suffocating. I mean, I can't imagine that you're just like walking away from it completely, right? Well, or you can do well. I. Well, you know, hit and miss. You can think whatever you want to think. You can write articles. You can okay. write books. But you can't take clients. Okay. So you're just you doing travel. stuff for your own you personal can't get joy on an airplane. fulfillment. You can't get on an airplane for a client. Even if it's a gig, you're like, I want to do this gig. I'm going to learn from this gig. It's going to creatively fulfill me. Well, you know, you can have that discussion with yourself. But, okay. But be aware, you know, you, you, it's not the money. Right. You're not operating out of fear. Okay. So that's the, you're not taking the gig because you need the cash. Giving yourself you know, that hard freedom. To, yeah, it's hard to turn off the gas, right? Yeah. So you, you get everything set up, you know, and and you have something that continues. You, you you know, you don't just say, "Hey, I'm not showing up," but you're cognizant of the fact you don't take a new one, right? Yeah. You, you're cognizant of the fact if I'm getting on the plane to go make money, the money is not the reason. Right. Okay. Money's out of the equation. 
whatever, whatever, you know, my, the way I, but now you're in lifestyle design. Yeah. If okay. you have a family, you get to weigh your family versus the, take the kids with you. you it have, doesn't matter. The money doesn't matter anymore. You took care of the money. Money's out of the right. equation. You have the freedom of choice. That's it. Yeah. We're trying to take the pressure off because the people who don't, who let's say some people, listeners are not consultants. They have no idea of the, the mental pressure on a consultant. And yeah. I remember uh, when I had been traveling too much and I was trying to trying to get myself to say no. And um, um, we haven't gotten to the see the, the travel part. I, I put a 50% travel cap on. Right. We should mention that um, and come back to that in a bit. I also tra- I limited the number of conferences I went to to three because I figured uh, I found that they – that was travel, no money, away from family, yeah. and I had to put a I had to put a cap on it, okay. um, uh, like that. Uh, I forgot exactly where I was in that before I did that little. So we were talking about out. money. We were talking about not having, yeah. not giving you the freedom to. Choose oh yeah, the fear on the phone, right? Yeah. So the the you answer the phone and a client says to you, "Oh my gosh, Dave, you're so wonderful. You are the smartest person in the entire world." And they blow smoke up your ass. I don't know if you right. have to bleep that out. No. And and they make you feel wonderful. They make you want to blow smoke up your ass. You're you're wonderful. You're the most you're the most smart, perceptive person in the entire world. Only and in fact, so so there's there's first of all, they're making you feel good, yeah. right? They're they're, they're lining they're, it up, they're flattering you. Yeah. And then they say, "We have a problem. Oh my God, we're, we're going to die if we don't solve this problem." So now you've got pity, and oh by the way, you are the only person the only in the entire one. world yeah. who can who can solve this problem <laughs> for us, right? Uh, so now you've got pity going, plus pride, plus all kind of stuff, and we'll pay you gobs of money, gobs, gobs, gobs of money. Just show up, solve this problem, we'll save us, we'll send gobs of money away. So we've got greed in the equation, and then this little voice in the back of your head goes, "And if you don't say yes, nobody will ever call right. you again. That's it, and you will die in ignominy <laughs> with your so family you starving factors, around you. Right? So you've yeah. got flattery, you've got ego, you've got greed, you've got." pity and you've got fear yeah all on the one side of the equation what's on the other side of the equation nothing right a little bit of family time well the guilt you know you got the guilt yeah a little bit of guilt a little bit yeah it's got nothing it's got (laughs) nothing to go in against those first one yeah i remember the time i literally i tell you i was shaking my head i was like on the phone just like i am now and I'm literally, my head is going left, right, left, right. Like, no, say no, 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 say no, no, no. <laughs> and my mouth, my mouth on its own accord is going, well, let me look at my calendar. And I kid you not, my head was shaking fast. Going, yeah. No, 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 no. And my mouth was busy going, I might be able to squeeze you in my calendar. I'm going, no, 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 no. Yes, 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 yes. No, no, no. Right? So that's, you know, for the people who don't know, for the life of the consultant to say no is just yeah. hard. And the way I did it was I wrote books. Actually, on my writing, because um, okay. you need, you right, need, so, I, I so need you to found have two a way to weeks. use it. Okay, I, I, I need two to four weeks at home, full time, solid, to build up a routine to write. And I would have two, four, six week breaks where there was nothing but writing, and that's how I wrote my books. All right, can I? pause and ask you a question about this because this is another why thing don't you I, ask me a question dave you've been pretty quiet so far with your questions well so mine are mostly about how you cope with this that with, was irony by the way i know i know i'm letting it go because okay. i'm all excited about asking this question um one of the things that i find i travel a lot i'm trying to keep it down to 50 but it's usually around 60 to 70 is that routine becomes absolutely critical so i have one routine when i'm on the road if i'm teaching classes like the day goes a certain way when i'm home it takes me a couple of days to work back into any kind of a routine but um 
I was one of the things I wanted to ask you was do you because you're you move around a bit like right now you're at Nick's you'll be someplace else after that do you rebuild a new routine every time or do you have like these are the things that I have to do every day to keep it together well you have to separate there's been a couple of phase transitions in okay. in my career because I've been doing this for 20 years now and and gotten reasonably famous so so there's different periods okay so let's take the time um before my my books came out and i got well known yeah um so my book my use case book came out about the same time as the agile manifesto those happened to hit about the same time yeah so if we take the 90s 94 to 2000 where i was pretty an unknown consultant and you know trying to make my way you know that's that's one lifestyle for a consultant and then from from let's say you know 2001 to 2009 when i got divorced and my kid graduated from eventually graduated from high school and i could change my lifestyle so 2012 my my total total lifestyle changed and i did this nomadic thing so that's a phase change so before that i you know was home-based because i had kid okay um and i had to go home so in the unknown uh, time period see what was your question again the routine i mean do you do you have like yeah so so when i had so so when i i i wasn't you know when i wasn't well so well known um, uh, here's another important part. Uh, 50% travel is not enough. There's a, there's a guy who told me, an, an old consultant who told me, if you want to stay married, uh, don't, and you have 50% travel, don't do every other week. Do half a week every week. It's more travel for you, but it's better for your family. And sure enough, when I broached the subject with my wife, she said exactly this. She said, look, it's really tough for me. You go – because I had a 50% travel um, – uh, I had a 50% gig, so it's gone a week, home yeah. a week, gone a week, home a week, gone a week. And and she says it's really tough for me because you go away. It takes me a couple of days. I finally figure out I adjust to like you not being here. I build yeah. a rhythm. The you come back. Thing. You screw up my rhythm. Yeah. You know, three days later, I, I, I get adapted. You know, I get into the rhythm. Then you take off and it happens every week. So what I did was Monday morning flight out and a Wednesday night flight back. I was really lucky at that point. I had a fifty percent gig, okay, um, doing stuff. And then you put some things on top of it, some conferences, a few other things, right? Yeah. But if if even if it was Sunday night to Wednesday night, you know, from the kids' perspective, it's like you're working late a couple of days a week. You're home. You're yeah. home Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Everybody knows Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You're not around and. You know, Wednesday night you show up late, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and maybe Sunday you're around, right? Yeah. So the weekly, the weekly patterning, okay, is important. So the the rhythm super duper important. So if if I were in those times, I would schedule all my classes for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Okay, all classes beginning of the week, so I get Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Thursday, Friday, Saturday, as the case may be, at home. Okay, and that sets up a rhythm. Now, when I travel, um, I was talking with somebody. I think Nick and I did a, a little Facebook live on self care or traveling. Um, oh, I know wow. better than any. Okay, I would like to. Check yeah, that we did out. that. I'll, we could. I can send you the link, and and it's it's the two of us. Okay, talking about this. I'll send you the link, and you could put that in the notes here. Yeah, somewhere. that would be great. We did a fun thing. We pointed our cameras at each other, so he was on my feet and I was on his feet. Okay, and we were talking together. It was kind of strange. But um, but I'm I'm no better. I'm lousy. When I'm in a hotel, I'm lousy like everybody. I there's a gym in the hotel. I don't use it. I'm too lazy. I can't use gyms in hotels. <laughs> I don't do any writing. I'm you know I don't do anything. I when I was training for for sports for a period of about five years, I would drive around town and look for a place for swim workouts. But typically, I'd come up empty, so I'd drive around all night 
you know, not doing anything. I'd, I'd look yeah. for theater, I'd, I'd do, but I'm no better than anybody. You know, it's terrible. I try to watch what I eat for breakfast, and then I overeat when I'm teaching and eat all the snacks and the cookies, and then they, <laughs> yeah, they bring in a pizza at lunch, and, and I go for beer after. It's horrible. It's horrible. So um, how long did it take you to give yourself the, uh, the permission that that was okay? Oh, I hated it from the beginning to the end, and I do, even now. It's, okay. I've never – no, it's not okay. Okay. I, I, but but I'm no better than anybody or that else. You, I guess you – It's you not just... okay. I just suffer with it like everybody else suffers with it. <laughs> All right. um, these days, I use Airbnb. If if I'm in a place more than two nights, I think it's an insult to the host to stay only one night Airbnb. Okay. Um, but if I'm if I'm especially if I could be three nights or more, I rent an apartment everywhere. I'm here in Gulfport, Florida. I have an apartment. Okay. Um, and then and then I do my own cooking. And so I first thing I arrive, I go and get eggs, eggs and milk. Yeah. You know, bread and honey, and I have you know eggs and bread. And honey and toast and coffee, you know, in the morning, every morning. So I've got my own that, and and I almost never go out to restaurants. I hate restaurants. I hate going out to restaurants. There's okay. no relaxation restaurant. And I cook, you know, salmon and rice. Or in and if I'm in Europe, in in France in particular, they have pre-cooked food you can buy. You can buy quiche, stuffed pies, things that are properly home cooked yeah. foods, not nasty Processed, fast food yeah. stuff, but proper food. I'll buy those and take them home, and you know I'll have a I'll, I'll have some quiches and cheese and a glass of wine at dinner. It's it's great. Wow. You know? So part of it. So now I because because I've done a phase change, and you're in a different phase than I was. So yeah. So when I had a home base, when I was traveling and I was staying in hotels, the food was nasty. If I were doing it again, I'd Airbnb it and buy food and cook it in the, at least breakfast and most of the dinners. And suffer and suck up on all the nasty food they give you when you're teaching. <laughs> Well, now, since I left, getting slowly to you know the other part of your question, yeah, um, is um, is the phase change in 2012. So in 2012, my son graduated from high school, okay, and I decided now I'm you know now I'm a single guy again. Yeah, I want to go to France and work on my French. My I had good tourist French, and I wanted to take it up to fluent. Okay, so I went to I, I went to Nice. I did some research on where I want to go to in France for a couple of months, and I spent three months in Nice. And I took a week of classes every every month, and okay. I went out every single night, seven nights out of seven. Wow. I was out trying to find something with French language, and I became quasi fluent by the end. And I'm categorized as fluent now, and I can teach classes and do consulting in French if I have to. Wow. Um, and so, and so I started that I went for three months and I planned, planned literally to move back to Boulder at the end and move from Salt Lake city to Boulder and, you know, set up in Boulder. But I got clients in Europe and, um, in, in September of 2012, I started traveling. And at the end of October, 2012, one of my clients sent me to Japan and then they were going to send me to China. So I'm standing in, in Japan, like October 30th whatever. Okay. And I had the choice of going then back to Boulder. And I thought, well, Boulder in November is not actually that attractive, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's dark and you don't have the snow yet. And it's a bunch of rocks. It's probably cloudy. Um, and I had heard stories of spending Christmas in, in Australia playing beach volleyball. And so I thought, well, that's interesting thought because I'm free. I'm totally like, I'm unhooked from the world at this point in my life at that October of, you know, so so I just bought a ticket to Australia. Literally, I'm standing in Japan and bought a ticket to Australia. 
And uh, I had a friend in Brisbane, um, Tony Ponton. So shout out to Tony Ponton here. And he said, come stay with us for a week. He said, oh, okay, fine. So I showed up in Brisbane. And I, I, I kid you not, I do remember talking about life transitions. I'm standing in one-way ticket to Australia, yeah. a three-month visa. And my, my bags are stashed somewhere waiting for Tony to get off work. And I'm walking across the bridge in Brisbane, Australia, going, I have no idea what this is, but it's I guess it's a new life, right? I just feel like I was dropped out of a UFO in Brisbane, Australia, and I have no idea what this is. But so, here I am. Do you think and that, that was the beginning of my new life that you that you hear about? Do you think that your the phase one version of you would have believed that story if you went back oh, in time? Oh no, this okay. you know what's because <laughs> there's a lot of people who are probably like, That's not possible. My life can't do that. Yeah, you know, so people in the olden days, and they probably still do, they ask you these questions like, um, so where do you see yourself five years from now, right? Right. If if I look back over my life, over my entire life, starting from age zero even, there's no time in my life where five years later it looked like anything I could have imagined five years before. Wow. Uh, no, minus between age 22 and 27 when I was still working as a, as an employee in a company. Okay. Um, you know, and then I, and then I they became freelance as a hardware designer. I was a freelance hardware designer. But then I decided to send myself to, to Europe and get a job there right after I got married. So I got a job of all places at IBM research in Switzerland, which in Zurich, which is like, you can't even think about that. That's, I remember when I, I saw, I just saw the name ibm zurich research it sounds really badass i said that's what i said to myself yeah you know, in other words that i was saying like, what is what is that and i sent off an application letter to the director of the laboratory like i knew it from nothing right i just sent off a letter cold i yeah. did that thing right yeah i had 30 letters all lined up and i was like sending them out right five a day or five a week in those days or whatever and i ended up getting a job there you won't even believe it right so what's the odds of me ever thinking while i'm a hard junior like i'm at 25 that six years later i would be a researcher at the ibm zurich research laboratory you can't even you can't make that stuff up but if you don't and for the people that that feel like they can if they don't try they're never going to know that's That's it you know i sent out i sent out 30 or 50 letters handcrafted like super i did a little whatever research i could and send out handcrafted letters to these 35 or 50 places well i kept a spreadsheet like you know and and it was the whole rejection thing right so i sent it out it got received i got rejected then i got a phone interview and then i got rejected and then i got a personal review and then i got rejected right i had a spreadsheet set up with all the rejection points but and, and it had 35 and it was on paper right in those but and and when any I rejected it was just it was a check mark and you know, I just put a date in a column it's more than 35. that though because each rejection is what gets you into the state of fitness you need to be in for the interview that gets you the job I it could be I don't know I I, I don't know that I would go that far all okay. I know is I wanted to turn it into a mechanical process and not something personal we're back to that sending poems and articles off yeah. right yeah it was the same principle that I was using back then and uh, and I ended up with out of all of that, I ended up with a job offer in England and a job offer in Switzerland. And both of them phenomenal, wow. incredible jobs That's really that cool. I could never have foreseen, could never ever ever have foreseen. And um, so I ended up there, and then I had to come back. Um, and so that was, you know, you can't even imagine, you can't make up that stuff. And then yeah. I'm IBM consultant, something object oriented, something, and then I'm solo consultant, something. You know, you can't at age at age twenty six, you couldn't. 
begin to imagine this life. There's just no way. But and being, then being I write open these to books, it is and then I year. write this Agile Manifesto thing, and that all hell breaks loose. And then yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. When you guys, if were, you made this stuff up, when but, you guys were in the room at Snowbird, did you? I mean, did you? all feel like this was going to be that big of a deal or was it just no i think you know we're everybody in the room was super well read if you look at the people who were in the room you've got you know martin fowler and and jeff sutherland and mike beetle and kent beck and bob martin and like i mean ward cunningham it's like the who's who of all those people all of us super well read very thoughtful people you know we we knew there was a potential for something good Right. to come of it because we're all pooling right the moment afterwards we're all publicizing it right yeah it's amazing but but the level that which it's taken off now that's you know it's like you start a forest fire i have been part of at least four or five workshops where people wanted to write something like a manifesto and change the world um and, and but that was the only one i would say the internals of which was spectacular like the actual running of that workshop was spectacular okay and the results were spectacular the other ones the results were i mean the running of the workshop was like bad sometimes and you could tell nothing was going to happen or seemingly good and still nothing happened what so made like the running of accidentally... the workshop in snowbird so good i'm i use the phrase um very generous listening okay um there were 17 people there, any any one of which could have derailed everything because they were all big mouth, big ego, very yeah. smart, very uh, alpha types, right? Yeah. 17 alpha types who all chose to be quiet and listen. All, all 17. Wow. And so when anybody spoke, everybody was intent on making that person good. Isn't that strange? Okay. Seven, I've seen all kind of cat fights happen in these things, and usually people have got some play they want to make for themselves. In that particular workshop, everybody tried to make everybody else look good. So if I have an idea and I'm struggling with it, the rest of the room is going to help me get clarity on it. Totally, and 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 that was the for me the the most differentiating characteristic out of that, and and every every other workshop I've ever been to. Wow. Especially if you take into account, right, the people who are in the room. Um, so yeah. we had Steve Meller there, and Steve Meller was cool. Um, and so shout out to Steve Meller here, who's – I think he's in Australia now. But anyway, he had um, a, a methodology in the object-oriented world that we didn't think much of. It was a very, it's a very heavy mechanical method that, that some of us were kind of – you know were against. It was like on the opposite side of the equation. Steve shows up at the workshop. How, you know, how he got invited, I've got no idea. Um, Bob Martin sent out the invitation, so Bob Martin had him on the list. Well, we're introducing ourselves. I kid you not, Steve Meller introduces himself and says, I'm Steve Meller. I'm a spy. <laughs> that was that was his intro. Like We were all going like, what's Steve Meller doing here? He introduces himself with this fabulous, fabulous like, self-deprecating yeah. intro. I'm Steve Meller. I'm a spy. And we go like, gee, many Christmas. What does that mean? When we got into the discussions uh, about what is our goal, what are we trying to achieve, um, you know, he was into this visual grammar. He wants to set up this visual grammar. We're going, like, yeah, but you know, if we're programmers and we're programming in a visual grammar, you have to stay in a visual grammar. You can't like like do your first draft in a visual grammar and then go to text only programming 
if so, you'll never go back to the visual grammar. He goes, yeah, I know. I don't want you to ever go to programming. It's a mixed method. You've got visual grammar with drawings plus annotations in code. But you should always be able to work like that. You should never leave that that um, strange combinational like 2D, 1D li- linguistic grammar wow. paradigm. And everybody in the room, right, they could blow him off. That's the moment where you blow someone off. Yeah. You get Ron Jeffries in there. You know, I almost remember Ron Jeffries' face <laughs> at this moment. And, you know, and, and he goes, I'm cool with that. So I, you know, I don't, I can program in any language. If you tell me it's a combo, hybrid, 2D, 1D language, and that's my source code language. Yeah. I don't care. I'm game. I'm, I'm down with that. And we all got behind Steve Miller and go, yeah. Yeah, I got that. I like it's a tough research agenda. I understand. I understand why you're struggling. It's got certain problems, but yeah. So we normalized that, and Steve Miller was suddenly boom inside the group. Wow! Right. So, so that's the generous listening that I'm talking yeah. about. And then, and then, then he contributed like you know, like everybody. We were like all in the group. That's cool. Generous listening is really, really tough. It was a totally, totally egoless um, couple of days. Yeah. So Ron said something during the Agile conference when I was interviewing him that kind of knocked me over, which I, I mentioned to team members holding each other accountable. And he said that team members should hold each other up, not hold each other yeah. accountable. And I thought that that's was right. really profound. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's very interesting. So anyway, let's see. We're on this interview. We've been yeah. going for a while, but let's <laughs> yeah. see. We've done. Yeah. We done. We did the, you know, the personal part. And I just want to reiterate, I want to resummarize for people because it was a long ramble um, when I went. When I went solo, the first thing I did um, was to set a 50% travel cap and by preference, half a week every week, not every other week. And I set a maximum goal, maximum income target, minimum and maximum. When I hit the maximum income target, anything is more important than the next gig, anything. And that frees you up from the tyranny of the, you know, of fear and fear and greed. Um, And I set up uh, that I should write some books so that it filled up the the home time. So I had I had reason why I had to be home for a couple of weeks at a time because I was writing these books. Um, what else? Three have, conferences a year. Yep. And and a drip feed for the clients, right? Drip feed. Oh, yep. the other thing was, many consultants told me you're either like overworked or empty. So you're on a gig. You're on a hundred percent of the time. You don't have time to look for next clients. It ends suddenly, and now you're in panic, and you spend then three screwed, months trying yeah. to get the next gig. And so what I learned from that is you never don't drip feed. Even when I was f- oh, my 50% okay. cap, I was always sending out a small number of lead requests all the time because when it ends, you already want Something. you know the discussion pipeline filled. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, so I'm going to type all those up, but I have three other ones that I I want to make sure that you're okay with. So one of them is when you talked about your first jobs, there's a lot of things that seem impossible, and the only thing that makes them impossible, whether it's getting something published or getting a job in a research lab, is not being willing to take a chance to try to get the job. Yeah. That yeah. listening is what, when you talked about you know writing the manifesto, that the listening, the generous listening is what made that so incredible. Um, yep. and, and the other thing with everything you've said theme-wise is – it seems to me like in the same way, if, if I say that Agile is a continuous pursuit of improvement, you're constantly chasing new things of interest and finding ways to creatively fulfill yourself, when, whether it's volleyball or whatever, which I think right. that's an important part of it, too. I think the drive to find the next thing, um, 
And that, I mean, that maybe that's a segue. I into subject, the heart of I subject stuff. everything to quality of life considerations. Okay, and and I know, and I know other people who live below the poverty line who do the same. By the way, yeah, um, and and they go like, so I'm so I'm poor, I'm fucking poor. Like, so what? I've got a life that I love, and if I if I did that which I needed to do to make more money, I would actually I can function. Yeah, and I would lose the quality of life. And I've met people who were below the poverty line who did that. I just happen to be lucky that I'm above the poverty line, and I can do that. But most people get caught in a in a greed circuit. Yeah. So there's there's three income levels that I learned a long time ago. There's what I call really not enough money. There's still not enough money, <laughs> and there's more than enough money. Okay. Okay. So so my 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 little sister used to live below the poverty line. She was in the really not enough money. I mean, really not enough money. Like just even literally putting beans and rice on the table for kids was a, yep. was a major, was a major thing. There's, if you really have enough, don't have enough money, it's really there. You can't, you can't kid around with that stuff. That's really, now what I noticed was as soon as anybody has enough money, a little bit of enough money to they function, more. then they need more and more and more. And I had, I knew somebody who, who had, was making over 150,000 a year, probably over 200,000 a year. I kid you not. And this woman was going, oh, I'm, I'm so worried. I don't have enough money. Oh, we're so worried about the expenses. And we're, and we're like, how can you be worried about that? You've got like over 200000 a year. What are you doing? Right? Stop it. Yeah. And I realized that that not en- still not enough money thing goes up into the millions. Yeah. It, it doesn't stop. It's a, it's a mindset. Yep. It's people who always think. So I went, Whoa. If that goes from the poverty line all up into the millions, yeah, that means you know. And then I know a few people who've popped over the top, and they just frankly have more than enough. I'm sorry, it's just more than enough. They don't have to think about it. It's not a thing. Yeah, it's not a thing. Um, so that that kind of a of a thinking is is super important. If you know, most of us for most of our lives are going to be in the still not enough money. We're just operating. We have enough to live. It's still not enough. You're trying to break the the mental tyranny of that. Well, and it's and again, it's not about getting as much as you can. Like when you talked about the buffet, it's you take as much as you need, but leave the rest for other people. Figuring right. out what you need is the tricky part. Well, there was another phrase. You know, in the U.S., we have this phrase, uh, "living beyond your means." Yeah. And well, one day when I, I I was looking at my life and the way it constructed it, I said, "Oh, I'm living below my means." That's kind of interesting because when you live below your means, then you feel rich. Then you're not in that still <laughs> yeah, not enough money. Yeah. Then you're always in the more than enough money category. I have more than enough money. It gives you more freedom. I, I arrange, you know, the, the things I, – I know I've got enough to feed, right? So we're not in the sub-poverty level. Yeah. I've got enough coming in. So so I can choose by my attitude and my, and my spending habits to whether I'm still not enough or I'm more than enough. And I just chose to lower my – um, my needs and spendings so that I was putting money in savings and I had, uh, yeah, I was comfortable. I had more than enough. Cool. And I met a guy who was in school and I'd say he was at the poverty line by, by official standards. And he told me the same thing. He says, Oh yeah, I have more than enough money. I have very, very, very basic lifestyle requirements and I feel rich every day. I got extra money because I just, you know, I don't do things that take it. Yeah, it's a big mindset. And that shift. attitude, that's a major, major shift for yeah. for people in the Western industrial world. Yeah. And I say that because, you know, I go, I now it's, let's shift over to current lifestyle. I spend, I, the last couple of years, I've spent um, like three months in France, if I could, and three months in Argentina, and three months in Australia. 
I want to go to some of these places. I, I love going to these places like Argentina, where many people struggle with poverty or like really in the not enough money category. Right. And they celebrate life in a way that, that, you know, we who have enough, we don't. Yeah. And I and I take I take real lessons from that. I go, holy cow. So that's what I need to learn. So that's what I've been doing since 2012 is trying to learn New from stuff. these other people, these other cultures. More, you know, joy in the moment, joy in the family. I don't need that. I don't need that. This is fabulous. And celebrate every little thing that's good. So, so that's is it become fair to more say my theme in living in the last four years. That in terms of being a human, you're still more in the high level. You're gathering. Yeah, definitely. Well, I don't know. Um, you could say, you know, if, if we jump the heart of Agile and the Kokoro thing. That was my segue. That was a very nice little segue. <laughs> um, so Nick Cementa uh, wants me to rebrand myself as just radical simplification. Like forget Agile, forget heart of Agile. Just just <laughs> radical simplification. Yeah. And and probably when I get off this podcast, so before you even get to post this, yeah, uh, we'll go to a little Facebook Live. If you're on Facebook, go find it um, on radical simplification. And that's now I would say is kind of I finally have a have a tattoo that says Kokoro. Okay. And and radical simplification says, roughly speaking, that you don't need to focus on a lot of stuff. So let's let's segue into Heart of Agile briefly. Yeah. Um, I don't think it needs that much time, uh, which is great because we've used up so much. Yeah, I appreciate uh, you but, spending the time doing this too. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if we do the Shu Hari Kokoro sequence for people who don't know Shu. These are terms from Aikido, martial arts. Shu is a Japanese, Chinese word, but I, I use the Japanese tradition, and it means follow. So you, you go to a martial arts dojo, and you do whatever the master does. You just copy, copy, copy. You're not allowed to ask any questions. You just try to do what the master's doing, whatever the teacher's doing. In Western terms, in general, in general um, uh, uh, skills acquisitions terms, that would be like follow a technique. You know, if I'm baking bread for the first time or making a pie for the first time, I'm not going to ad lib on the technique. I assume the technique's good. I do whatever it says. I will not ask any questions. Now, that's shoe. And then ha, which you referenced, um, is the second stage when you start collecting techniques. So you, you start collecting different bread recipes and whole wheat and sourdough, and you, you begin to, you know, like branch out. And you're in collection mode, collection mode. You're collecting all these different techniques. And then re, re, uh, so ha means break, and then re means leave in Chinese, and it means detached in Japanese. And again, I use the, the Japanese more. But it's like if you're done with the dojo, you've learned everything that the, the master's got, or you know, you've got it all. And you leave the dojo, you go out into the world. And now, now in terms of techniques, you're inventing, you're blending, you're splicing. You're doing something different every time. And it's 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 unholy complicated for anybody who's learning because you just everything every time you do anything is different. So what the heck can they copy from you, right? Because it's different. And so I got myself when I was in France, I actually got myself a re-tattoo because I I felt that I had gone out in the world and I was living an improvised lifestyle in 2012 in France. Okay, I got my first ever tattoo and it was it was re. Um, and so I thought that was – that's the top, by the way, of the performance pyramid, of the performance sequence. And then um, about a year and a half ago, I was challenged to kind of restructure my advice that I was giving because to bring it back to Agile briefly, Agile has become over-decorated and, and, and it's, it's unholy 
complicated these days. It's it's you know it's tough. I'm a certified Scrum trainer, and there's 118 learning objectives that we have to give in a two day Scrum class, Scrum master class. It's very very shoe level. Like Scrum was not defined at shoe level. Scrum was defined at re with very few rules. It has become this very very codified rigid thing, which it was never intended to do. So it's yeah. it went from re to huh. So so in a way to try to simplify it back out again. I came across, I, I, I stumbled into these four words that I use for the heart of Agile now, which has nothing to do with software, and it's, it's collaborate, deliver, reflect, and improve. Collaborate, deliver, reflect, improve. And I decided, I tested it out for a bit uh, and, and concluded it, was, it seemed to work. You don't need more than these four words. You, everything you're fitting under collaboration improves the exchange of ideas in the group and all kind of stuff you have to deliver to get feedback so you know what happened you know you had, this group is isolated they came up with these great ideas they did the best mind melt possible they deliver it out into the the world and and the world doesn't doesn't like it you need feedback it's broken but you don't know where so you need the delivery then you have to reflect you have to stop Stop, pause, think about what just happened, like what's going on, how do I feel, what happened, what's going on. You get some insights out of that, yep. and then you improve. You come up with your little improvement agenda, and, and then you go around again, right? Right. Collaborate, reflect, improve, collaborate, reflect, improve, deliver, reflect, improve, deliver, reflect, improve. So I came up with those four words, and I was trying to fit it into a framework of thinking. And um, after some research, found this nice word, kokoro which is shin in Chinese. And I wish I could use the short word because Americans like the short words. But in Japanese, I'm staying with the Japanese tradition. Okay. So kokoro, and it means heart or essence, uh, which is great. It's perfect. So if we say, what is the essence of Agile? What is the heart of Agile? Um, that would be the kokoro, Agile no kokoro in Japanese. Okay. But we can apply this to everything, the radical simplification. And this is now, it's not a performance aspect it's a teaching aspect so that the top people go, oh, yeah, better than better than re is Kokoro. And I go, no, no, no. You transitioned out of performance into teaching. Don't mix the two together. Yeah. The top of performance is re where you do something different every time and you can't explain it because you're going off of little vibes that nobody else can detect. And you make this like magic happen. That's re. You can't explain it. But now when you try to get someone else to do it, you watch the super masters. They've found a way to simplify it for the beginners. That would be what I call radical simplification, okay. which is the thing that Nick wants to talk to me about. It wants to be kind of like the rebranding of the Alistair's, not like agile, re, like I don't understand what's going on, which is kind of crystal. Sure. Uh, but rather, but rather heart of agile, which is radical simplification. Um, you, there's so few things to focus on. This is Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid. And he says, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. And he teaches, uh, you know, he's paint the, paint the fence, wax the car, paint the fence, wax the yeah. car. That's all you need. And, you'll, and you, you just keep mastering that. And I now look for radical simplification in everything that I do. It's my lifestyle. I have, I have a spreadsheet. I know how much money I need to live. And I have money in the bank sufficient right? Then, yeah. then I'm done. I don't have mins and maxes anymore. I have money in the bank. I have a burn rate. The curve's going up, but I know there's certain drops and blah, 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 blah. It makes it very simple to, to manage my income flow. Um, and so 
super, super, super simple guidelines. This is the Kokoro. So I got a Kokoro. I had to get a Kokoro tattoo. So now I have a Kokoro tattoo. And, and getting my, to that state arm. will leave you open to whatever is going to come down the path. Then, then you've maximized your freedom, right? So right. in the performance of the thing, I'm re, right? Because I can do lots of stuff. But in my thinking, my framework, I've simplified, simplified it, simplified it. So I, I take tango, but I, I only – I look for teachers who can teach Kokoro-level teaching of tango. I don't take tango lessons from people who give me complicated choreographies to learn because I know that those are those those are a derivative feature of dancing. They're not the, the interesting right. part of dancing. I was playing ping pong. I love golf port. You know, even in as you can tell, I inject a lot of personal stuff in my <laughs> professional stuff these days. I can't not. It's part of just being a solo consultant and yeah. living. Um, so I'm I'm here in Gulfport and it's hot. Obviously, because it's Florida in the summer, right. and this coffee shop area has has a ping pong table, and people are playing ping pong at midnight outside. So, so I'm playing. You know, I'm a couple of glasses of wine into it, and playing ping pong. And this guy's really bad player and can hardly hit the ball back. And I go, I go, hey, you know, um, is what I taught my kids: just hold the paddle flat and try to hit my belly button. Right? Try to make the ball hit my belly button. Hit it at my belly button. Don't think about anything else. Just hit it at my belly button. Wow. And the quality of play goes up, boom, like one sentence, <laughs> you make and it suddenly simple. we're getting rallies, right? Because yeah. it's, it's radical simplification. We're trying to find the the ultimate simplification. So I have a book series I've wanted to write for like 10 years, and I'm just really bad on getting my – I need my own, my own publishing channel. But um, it would be called Simplifying Object-Oriented Design, Simplifying Project Management, Simplifying you know Requirements, Simplify everything, and just give those like super simple things that get you – get you a long 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 way and you just hone that and hone that hone that and it gets you you know it's very stable wow so we're doing that with agile so the four parts of of the heart of agile heart of agile comes from kokoro that's why it's heart and not center and not essence and not whatever but it's heart because it's agile no kokoro's heart of agile four words collaborate deliver reflect improve now each of these unfolds i we've tried making mind maps but but everything fits into these four words so you can find any topic and put it into there and into collaboration there's a shuhari progression skills progression inside of each one of these so under collaboration i have constructed a set of collaboration cards that came from a research study i did okay with about 15 different cards four suits uh, four cards each on how to improve collaboration in your team. It's got nothing to do with software. It has everything to do with collaboration. That would be a shoe-level collaboration technique. Um, inside of collaboration, I'm, I'm looking at um, what's the role of a manager inside of a larger organization? What's the what's the Kokoro-level, what's the shuhari inside of being a manager in an organization inside of delivery what are the aspects of delivery for learning or delivery for income or internally you get all the lean kanban stuff fits inside of delivery so these things expand out and you can take a look internal queuing models or you could take a look at lean startup which is delivery for learning or you could look at take a look at um, incremental delivery pricing and, and finance models, which is inside of delivery. Inside of reflect and improve, we're looking at, um, I'll say recent advances, although it's probably 10, 15 years old or more. In psychology and psychotherapy, there's a thing called 
um, brief therapy, solutions-focused therapy, and the subset of that that I like is called brief, which is always very future-focused, always constructing futures and articulating what is the, the exactness of the, of the future one wants to create. And you do that in the reflect and improve uh, uh, cycles. Um, so I, I don't do root cause analysis, and nor do my colleagues. We just say that's, you know, what would you like? Yeah. What would you like to be there? Why don't we just focus on what you'd like to be there? And let's just step into that. Uh, and then that pulls people into the future. So inside of the heart of agile are very, very, very modern techniques. Do you think that um, for someone to be kind of guided or helped into simplifying things, do they require somebody who's at the re or the kukuru level? No, no, and that's the and that's a really good question. I hadn't thought about that, but um, my my claim, my assertion here for Heart of Agile. Let's stay with the Agile just for a moment. Everybody knows what collaborate is. Hello, hello. Right. You know if you're collaborating or not. On a scale of one to ten, you're either a three or a six. Because if you're if it's kind of sucks, it's a three, and if it's pretty good, it's probably a six or you know or seven. You just brain. Everybody knows it's not a mystery. You say, what can we do to collaborate better? Everybody can name five things. That's not going to be a trick. So it's a centering of the attention. Okay. It, now we could go into like, hey, I heard about these collaboration cards. How do I use them? You know, but that's a that's a drop in the bucket. But I, yeah. so if I'm doing, I was actually asked to bid on on an organizational transition to Heart of Agile. That was a lot of fun because I I'm pretty skeptical about org wow. transitions. But if you were going to have 500, 600 people um, in all departments of the entire company go to Heart of Agile, how would you do that? And and transform means you're going to transform them to simple, and they're going to stop and stay simple. Well, so let's just say someone says, "Okay, give me a give me a project plan or or, or an initiative, yeah. you know, proposal for we're going to take 600 people. Let's just say we've got 200 software IT and 600 total. Everybody, you know, HR, finance, everybody's going to go hard on agile. What does that look like? So the first thing that would occur to me is to ask collaboration right so yeah. what's, what does that mean so ask everybody everything has to be local and easy everything has to be easy looking and so ask everybody in the organization to write down let's say in a, in a little table who do you need to collaborate with to get an end end delivery end effect of your work okay right on the outside world and then they would list in the table all the people that they the, the people that they would need to collaborate with uh, departments maybe but collab people best and then say well what's the strength of collaboration you need with that person to make it you know to get your job done on a scale of whatever low medium high and then what's the quality of collaboration at the moment with that person or department and that's a scale of one to ten and then what what could you propose to actually improve it in any small epsilon right so there's a little four four huh. column table and then okay. you get everybody to do this in the whole company now you've baselined you actually have baselined yeah. um collaboration and you have ideas and you can do a social network graph and you know da, 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 da. and then you get together with the groups and you say so let's work on improving collaboration like what does it mean we're going across departments silos competing reward structures you know bonuses all kind of wow. nonsense but let's just work on that nothing but that nothing but that and then yeah. you know six months later you take another blood pressure uh, check on that. So now, who do you need to, and what's the quality? Blah blah blah. And you can see if you've moved the needle. And my assertion is, if you move the needle on the collaboration, 
everything else you do, we can leave all the techniques we can leave all the techniques to the side people know if they're collaborating and they know what they need to make it better yeah and you may have to make some policy changes in the company and you know whatever whatever all the hard stuff happens and delivery was interesting because um usually in the tech world the delivery pipeline has got technological obstacles and legal signatory um, obstacles but the first place i tried to do this it turned out they literally they didn't know how to slice problems into bite-sized chunks to deliver little teeny pieces so it's they literally didn't know how to do that yeah. we're back to we're back to incremental development you know that they just needed tutoring and that was the biggest that's, obstacle that's becoming a really common theme in the agile i mean that was something that a lot of people were talking about um at the conference this summer was Forget about all the scaling and all the other complex stuff. You have to be able to just deliver anything, and then we can talk. Like, learn yeah, how to, yeah, learn yeah. How to stand up the, before you start trying to run down the street. That was a giant surprise for me that their problem was, even after my Carpaccio exercise, you know, which is aimed at teaching people that, they go, we got it. We're sold. We're totally sold. And we went back to our offices, and we didn't know what to do. Yeah. Teach us shuhari, shuhari skills develop. Teach us to shoe level, high level. How do we do that? So interesting to me was inside the delivery, the incremental development, literally not knowing how to do that. Yeah, that's in delivery. Yeah, so that's what it means to do an organizational transition to heart of agile, and and you don't you don't need many techniques. Most people, they know. Yeah. Right? Well, it's getting, so your it's question: getting what Do you have to have a specialist in it? No, you have to have people who are open. Okay. To the topic, you know, wide peripheral vision, let anything in and find out where you need a point solution, a point training. So do you have more events coming up? I mean, I know you did one in Philly recently. Are there more? Yeah, we scheduled? just barely settled on um, last week of April uh, next year, 2017, Okay. <laughs> in, in Pittsburgh. Ah, okay. And uh, shout out to Mike Kottmeyer at Leading Agile. He said he wants the title sponsor position. Hey, awesome. Straight up. Straight up, like the guy. Permani's trip like, on Kottmeyer. Yay. Yeah, all right. Well, I mean, like I put it on Facebook and said, here's what I want to do. And he just said, sign me up sponsor. And the next post was sign me up title sponsor. Let's That's go. That's awesome. So um, I, know, I have some good connections. Uh, uh, Summa is in Pittsburgh, and they're going to help construct it. PNC Bank is there. They might sponsor Tom Reinsell is there. He'll help out. Great. So it looks like that'll be. And so, um, in fact, just when you called, I was writing up kind of a vision, mission, values uh, document for the Heart of Agile Conference. Like, why does it exist? What is, what's the structure? Why is it structured that way? What, what are we looking for out of it? And so on. Oh, cool. So that'll be posted online shortly. All right. Well, I'll make sure to bring a, put a link to that too. So if you guys let me know when you've got it all sorted all. You bet. Cool. Hey, that was a good discussion. Did, yeah, we, thank you. This we, was, spent, we got everything. We spent, you spent awesome. giving me more of your time than most people do, and I really appreciate it, and this turned out great. So.